Hello and welcome to Story Radio, the podcast for readers, writers and lovers of literature everywhere. Today we're meeting Sally Page. She is the author of the bestseller, The Keeper of the Stories, and she's here today to talk about her new novel, The Book Beginnings, which has friendship as a central theme. Sally, could you tell our listeners a little about the plot of your novel? Certainly. Um, Rather like The Keeper of Stories was about stories and about everybody having a story to tell, The Book of Beginnings really draws on friendship. I've been very fortunate in my life to have some extremely good friendships, but this deals with um, friendships you make unexpectedly, um, perhaps later in life, sometimes friendships that go wrong. But the main um, characters in it are Jo, who's in her late um, 30s, and she takes over her uncle's it's kind of a DIY come stationary shop. And she goes there really to help him out, but also to escape the breakdown of a relationship. And she's a bit lost and not sure what to do with her life. Um, and in the course of looking after the shop, she meets um, Reverend Ruth, who is a runaway vicar. She's escaping what we don't know quite what. And also Malcolm, who is in his 70s. And he's researching a book he never writes. And it's an unexpected friendship about the three of them. But in the course of it explores quite a lot of different themes um, based around Hampstead and Highgate. Um, But friendship is the core of it. But it also gets into a little bit of history, um, all sorts of things, really. Stationary, very much so. Uh, But uh, it's things that are very dear to my heart. As Jo gets to know the shop, she starts adding new and exciting products to the range. I was wondering, are you a stationary obsessive? Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the joys of being a writer is you can say, I'm going to take myself into the place I want to be. When I was a little girl, I used to play post office all the time. And I am, you know, my love of fountain pens definitely comes through the book. And I started um, a fountain pen company oh, a fair few years ago now. So um, that really is part of the book. But also in that sense, I am writing what I know about one of the things that happen within the book and what Joe discovers in this shop is that when people write with fountain pen, they start telling you really intimate things about their lives. So as people are testing the pens in the shop, they are revealing their stories to her as well. And that's, um, so yes, I think it's true to say I do love stationery. So you're obviously keen on using fountain pens. Do you write a lot of your work in longhand as a starting point um no but i do the planning and sometimes when i'm scoping out ideas i might take a big sheet of paper and then i might write with um pencil but also fountain pen and as i'm typing i touch type um when thoughts come to me stray thoughts i always have a notebook by the side of me and then i might well make those notes in fountain pen um i think it would just take me so long if i actually wrote it all Mm. in hand do you find there's a different quality in things you've handwritten compared to... Oh, very time? much so. And um, I think it was um, Washington University did a study and you are three more times more likely to remember something you've handwritten than that you've typed. So I'm a, you know, 
definitely um, ideas for books. Um, I've always got a notebook on the go, always making notes, often in fountain pen. And I think the thing with a fountain pen is it slows you down, um, that you write more slowly with a fountain pen. It's more considered, which is why I think it's lovely for stationery if you're you know, sending a card to somebody. But also when I'm making notes to do with a book, I might pick up a fountain pen. One, because I love them and it's a pleasure, but also it's slowing me down and and sort of making my thoughts more considered. Hmm. I've actually been learning Hebrew recently. Oh, have you? And I've been, you know, you have to kind of learn the characters by writing. And um, because you're kind of working from right to left, that kind of makes your brain work in a, you kind of go into this slightly different mode. It's very interesting. Well, I found that with touch typing, actually, when I, I, learned to touch type because I taught I I wanted my daughters to touch type when they were at school when they were very young and so we got in those days it was like a cd-rom and they they were practicing and Libby my youngest daughter who is an author and I always knew she'd be an author she didn't really take to it and because I thought of all the people uh, you know Alex my eldest was very competitive and went at it Libs didn't I said look I'll do it alongside you best thing I ever did because what I have discovered with touch typing it releases a whole part of your brain so that you are living it it's, it's completely different and I used to type I used to type quite fast but when you touch type it's it is as you say you you discover something different about how your brain works hmm. yeah there's a kind of real mood of nostalgia in the book which I, I really liked and um, yeah it occurred to me that we write about things often that are kind of under threat or we feel they're under threat. And um, obviously fountain pens are a bit mm. under threat, but I wonder if you feel like friendship is under threat too in this digital age. Um, no, I, in fact, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was because I think from a lot of things we would read in the press and the news, which are really scary and really frightening, um, make us feel like sometimes the world is imploding. But my experience of friendship and um, what I know, I mean, I ran a market research company for many, many years, and I've spoken to thousands and thousands of people. And, you know, all sorts of people that I speak to, uh, whether it was the governor of um, Holloway Prison or nurses and doctors, all sorts of people, my sense of there is great friendship interwoven underneath the, the sort of all the awful stuff that is going on. Um, and even amongst the, the, the terrible stories that you can hear, read in the press, friendship is underneath there, rescuing, pinning it, helping. So I don't think, um, I really wanted to go, I wanted to explore friendship, but I don't think friendship is something that I would consider is a nostalgic thing. I think it's alive and well and uh, represented within society. Hmm. She obviously discovers her kind of self-worth through this friendship. Ruth and Malcolm weren't kind of obvious candidates for her friends. Um, what kind of process did you go through sort of by, you know, in selecting them as the characters? That... Um, well, it really started with Reverend Ruth because um, most of the characters I write um, are really drawn from my imagination or traits that I've picked up uh, along the many years of of people I've met. Reverend Ruth is the only person I've ever written who is based 
very much on somebody I know. And I have a friend, a retired vicar, Reverend Anne, and she is inspiring, whether you have her faith or not. She is quite alternative, warm, humorous, an amazing person. And actually, it was during lockdown where she was in our bubble. I spent a lot of time with her and talking to her as I was researching this book about her faith, because I didn't know a lot about the Christian faith. And the way she articulated it was compelling. And so my starting point was Reverend Ruth. Not all the things that happen are an exact replica, but there are certainly some stories in there that are um, things that she does. Or And I think my favourite one, am I allowed to mention something that's in the book? Oh, yeah, like, without giving yeah. it away. One of the favourite things just when she gets um, uh, scam calls, um, people are saying, you know, uh, you know, I want to speak to you. And she always says, I'd love to speak to you. I'm so glad you've called. And they go, oh, really? Uh, yes, no, now I want to talk to you. I want to bring the love of our Lord Jesus Christ into your lives. Mm-hmm. And she says, they cannot get off the phone fast enough. And that made me laugh. And I just like, I want to put that in the book. So the other characters really are very much imagination, a bit of this, a bit of that. But certainly Reverend Ruth, who I love dearly as one of the characters, is drawn from some of Reverend Anne's life. I am... Um... Yeah, she, she did really intrigue me. So I'm jumping out of order here to, to have a look. But um, I wondered whether she was telling the whole truth and the kind of revelation as to go why she became a runaway vicar. I kind of felt like there might be more that I maybe didn't I think she on. probably told it all. But I did think, I think when she originally talks about why she is a runaway vicar, which doesn't reveal the true reason why she's a runaway vicar, that I very much wanted to write about because when you actually look at what a vicar, a good vicar, does within society, I was overwhelmed by realize, when I realised what they have to deal with and what they have to do, the scale of their, their mission, really. And so anybody would balk at that at times. And also the fact when you are a minister, and I suspect it's the same in many religions, um, people feel that you're not a private person and that you they can comment on you. And that, she certainly said, is true. And I know that from other people who are, you know, within faith. They say, you know, people feel it's perfectly right to comment on your appearance and per- make personal comments. Mm. So I think that was true. And I do think, I, obviously, because I know them, I, my characters, it was the reason uh, so there wasn't anything else hidden. I wondered if you were saving something for another book. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sorry, Tapa, we'll go back to order. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your research in Hampstead and in Highgate Cemetery, where much of the novel is set? I'd love to know, do you have a personal connection to it? Or um, is it something explored specifically for the novel? I think um, I very much wanted to use the idea of a stationary shop. That could be anywhere. But then just before lockdown, I visited Highgate Cemetery. I had been there before and it was, it really inspired me. Um, Not really from the sort of Gothic point of view, more the point of um, these lives of people who are there. And once I started to explore that and the people who are are buried or interned there, I came across the most amazing characters and that whole thing of we have something to share, not only the people who are 
you know, the main characters, the main protagonists might share with these people, but this whole idea of if they were to ever meet any of these characters, what they would share. So that really inspired a lot of the book. Then obviously I wanted to make it the place, as somebody who used to be a florist, the the wildlife, the greenery, all of that is definitely inspiring to me. But then we had lockdown. So I'd already just booked to go on a number of talks and tours around the um, uh, cemetery. And we were all in lockdown. So I did a lot of it by, um, you know, online research and listening to everything. And when um, one of the scenes is set where it's snowing, I mm. hadn't been there during the snow. And uh, in fact, it was Reverend Anne text me and was going, you've got to watch, it wasn't Spring Watch, but it was one of those programmes, they're set, it's set in Highgate Cemetery because all the presenters couldn't go out to travel far. So somebody who lived near Highgate Cemetery was in there during the snow talking about the wildlife. I'm like watching it glued, making notes. So it was a kind of a bit of an odd way to have to do research. But I went back recently and I felt comfortable Mm. that I'd kind of got it right. It's quite hard to catch snow in London, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting because I think um, quite a lot of lockdown novels will have kind of quite a lot of research that's done via mm. the internet rather than actually going yeah. to places. And do you, do you write with a clear plan in mind before you start or, or do, does your story develop as you go along? I'm more of a planner. I start, I'm a planner. And then it takes off as I'm writing it, which means obviously you have to change it as it goes along. But my daughter Libby is a more of an intuitive who then brings in the plan. I'm a pl- I do it the other way around. I'm a planner where then my characters start to talk and they take me off in different directions. Um, and then obviously there's a whole stage of editing where you get advice from other people, which you know often when you think about what they're saying, you go, actually, yes, that... They might not come up with a solution, but you might go, okay, I can see why they have an issue with this and I'll find a solution for it. So it's then, you know, it's a, mm. it's a whole mix. Yeah. I was interested in the characters that you selected that um, Malcolm's researching. Um, were, they, were those kind of the characters from the start or, or did you have kind of other I had mm-hmm. others. I I looked around, having visited the, the Highgate Cemetery, and it was who can I get good biographies of? Because I'm whilst I I have a background in history, I am not going to start researching all the mm-hmm. different characters. So I bought um, in secondhand bookshops and online a whole load of biographies, and then started to explore them. I always knew I was going to use Karl Marx and George Eliot because they're the most famous one. But then I literally did what happens in the book. Um, I put all their names on a piece of paper, put them in a bowl and pick them out at random. So who met who, who was going to have a conversation with who was done completely at random. And that then did dictate how the book went. It sort of formed part of, it was, I don't think I'd call that planning. That was more luck or chance how how the the story developed. Mm. Um, But I certainly, once I started to, particularly as a Carl Zachary, once I started writing, (laughs) reading about him, because I mean, Abraham Lincoln's chiropodist, 
who turns out to be his personal spy. I mean, mm. that's a story that needs to be told. I mean, that's such an extraordinary man. Yeah. With the random draw, uh, like uh, mm. your character yes. is, because mm. um, he, um, when he... Uh, chooses who he's going to write about. When, no, when when they all choose who, yeah. who to, to focus on, they just choose some names, don't they? At so random, perhaps. which is what I did. <laughs> there being a, a story about friendship, it's a, a story, it's a romance. Um, mm. And I want to ask, do you think it's difficult to write love stories in the era of dating apps? Are we a very cynical age? I think it's more that it's difficult to write a love story where your characters can develop naturally because the reality is you'd Google, you WhatsApp, you, you know, there's a whole load of ways of connecting that um, get in the way of the storytelling, really, because, you know, you'd go, well, that wouldn't happen because you do X, Y and Z. Um, so that was the difficulty. Um you know, not, I, I mean, I knew I was going to avoid um, the sort of dating apps, although I must admit I've got an idea for another book where that <laughs> would be quite strong. <laughs> but um, I didn't want it for this because really it was a book about friendship and the love story needed to work alongside that. And it's quite an intimate, you know, it's an intimate space, the shop, Highgate Cemetery. It's kind of, uh, I didn't want to broaden it out into like the whole of the internet and and things. So it had to be neighbours who were, you know, uh, shop owners who were neighbours, really. Um, The the kind of feel of the book is kind of optimistic and life-affirming. Do you ever feel drawn to explore sort of darker areas in future works, do you think? I think so. And certainly The Keeper of Stories has some darker elements. And even within, you know, the Book of Beginnings, there are some more difficult themes and I think um, even that whole idea of when a friendship goes wrong and you're out of step with a friend you can feel physically sick with that and it can be an obsession it can be the thing you think about when you wake up in the morning and can be so distressing so in that sense I think I do explore some darker things but it is not um, you know I'm not dealing with very dark subjects within this book but I don't I think absolutely within other books I definitely will having said that I can absolutely guarantee I will always give a happy ending <laughs> I think just think that's you know yeah you, you were touching you were touching on the edge of a, a supernatural storyline at some point mm. with the um, backstory incredible ghosts um mm. is this something you might explore in later writing i would say no uh but actually i have the first book i ever wrote had a sort of supernatural thing but it's in a different genre and i don't know quite what we're going to do with that one yet but it isn't it, it's strange i've written about or i touch on ghosts because this isn't something i read a lot about it's not um something i'm particularly drawn to so it's almost a bit of a surprise to me that i've done it um so i don't think it will be a theme that's developed in other books hmm. i did think at one stage you were going to go much further down that mm. path but um, you veered away <laughs> 
And, and what do you have uh, plans next, if that's if it's not too early to ask? Do you uh, have a, another novel in the works? Yes, I mean, one of the joys of being what they now call a... I've, think it says on the back of this I am a a breakout sensation is that I mean I took I've been writing since 2016 and oh my goodness I've had a lot of rejections and I have written quite a lot of books so um, the book of beginnings I had written already um, when I got signed after the Keeper of Stories that was already written it did need a lot of editing and I'm currently talking to Harper Fiction about there are two possible routes we could go. Books that are already written, they do need, both of them would need considerable um, uh, editing. One has a strong floral theme, which I used to run a flower shop. So that's an area that I can write about and know a lot about. And the other area is about creativity. And um, that's and lies. That's quite a fun one. So I think we're, we're discussing at the moment which one to go through and they either route will need a lot of editing. Do you have a group of writers that you work with and exchange material on? No, I'm very solitary when I like I really love coming out and talking to readers, um, booksellers, absolutely love that. But no, when I'm writing I am very solitary. I love I mean I'll go and write in a cafe or, you know, move around. And I do chat ideas through with Libby. I would we would talk about more the difficulties when we're struggling, just not necessarily in detail of what's happening within the plot, just sympathising and empathising when we're when it when it's a bit hard. Um, but no, when it comes down to it, I'm living. It's in my head, so it's literally where I'm. I'm alone in my head, going off into nice places. <laughs> Do you have any advice for writers on how to cope with rejection and how to persevere to oh. get that first? Definitely. I mean, just keep going. I I can remember um, who wrote um, Olive Kitteridge, is it? Elizabeth Stroud, is it? I heard yes. her interviewed and she said she got a lot of rejections. And she said every time she got rejected, she thought, OK, well, I will write better. And I really tried to take that on board and go, OK, um, if in the rejection you, you feel like there is some... Uh, you know, worth to what somebody's saying, I would go, okay, well, I will do it better. I will write better. So, but I would say to people, just keep going because the reason, um, you know, the Keeper of Stories came out was because one woman, Charlotte Ledger, bought it. I mean, nobody bought any of my other, I have a very good agent, but nobody bought any of my other books. Nobody was interested. And she was the only one who was interested in, the keeper of stories and it's now sold over half a million copies and you know sunday times bestseller and i always mention that and she goes thank you because you know she saw it so uh, to people who are struggling and are struggling with rejection it takes one person and then it complete life changes completely for you so just keep going that's what i'd say well, I'm glad you did persist. So did I. So am <laughs> yeah. I. So am I. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure to oh, talk no, to you. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. It was yeah. lovely to meet you. Nice, nice to, to meet you. you. Um, could you read us a Yes, I thought, book, well, I'd, if I start with the, um, just do the prologue, which is short, but it sets the book out, out if that's okay. Yeah, lovely. So the prologue. 
Sometimes a heartbeat is all the time it takes to reach a decision. It may not even feel like a considered choice, just the veering away from the prospect of more misery, a final spurt to movement. The room remains unmoved, a silent witness, but loyal in its way to the woman who has just left it. The chair pushed out from the table tells no tales. The plate of half-eaten roll and cheddar, extra mature, with leftover Christmas pickle, eight months old but still going strong, lies in mute defiance. The man calls her name and without pausing to be invited in, pushes open the door that leads from the hall into the kitchen. And why would he pause? He has already let himself in the front door without asking. He huffs and puffs his way around the kitchen, opening the fridge, flicking through the diary left open on the table. The diary doesn't give her away either. It's record of parish meetings, choir practice, and a planned visit to a local garden centre with her curate, a testament to a seemingly blameless life. Maybe there is something in the handwriting, a neatly formed hand, precise and clear, apart from a kink in the S's that look as if they would like to escape from the regularity of the line. Opposite him, the back door to the garden, which always requires a doorstop, for once stands half open, half closed, stilled as if in anticipation like the rest of the room. Then very slowly it swings on its hinges and quietly clicks shut. 90 miles away off an alleyway in North London, another door is pushed open. The mail piled up in the entrance slithers aside and the broken bell clinks its tinny welcome. First across the threshold is a solitary leaf, a twist of orange spent, sent spiralling by a late August wind that holds within its warmth the piquant tang of autumn. A woman watches the leaf spinning progress into the quiet darkness of the shop within. For her, autumn has always been a season of beginnings, punctuated in her childhood by the anticipatory thrill of new shoes, crayons and pencil cases. Now she only thinks of endings. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you so much.